Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. Today is Monday, January 31st, 2022, if you can believe that. And today we are going to be covering some really cool stuff. In our first up section, which is news, we're going to be discussing um, some updated speculation on the character of Layla in the upcoming Disney Plus Moon Knight series. Uh, we're going to be talking about a couple of shows and things that are currently going and announced, as well as a piece that I have here called Netflix Live Action He-Man and Toxic Fandom. And we're going to talk about all of that and how that's related to itself. The comic book picks, we have a couple of really great ones. Unfortunately, I didn't get a number of the indie number ones that came out this past week, uh, so hopefully I'll be able to cover those whenever I do get them. But we have some really fantastic comics that came out this week, including the finale, or last week I suppose, the finale of Death of Doctor Strange, um, the Batman Catwoman special, which included the John Paul Leone tribute, which was fantastic, the return of both Saga and Monstrous, the final issue of Wonder Girl, and and a continuation of Devil's Reign. As far as the comic book pull list goes, that's going to be talking about comics coming out tomorrow on February 1st and Wednesday, February 2nd. That's uh, going to be covering a number of new indie number ones. Yet again, it's pretty exciting that we've had such a flurry of indie kickoffs for series right here at the beginning of the year. And then the standard stuff for the rest of the poll is mostly big too. Um, the big, the big thing I think that people are going to be wanting to listen to in this episode is going to come last, like usual. It is the Book of Manda, sorry, Book of Boba Fett <laughs> episode five, which was of course called Return of the Mandalorian, directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. It's her third Mandalorian, or I guess Star Wars. Um, <laughs> Star Wars property that she's directed and that is excellent. She did a fantastic job and I am super stoked to talk all about the Darksaber and Mandalorians and Mandalore and the Clan Vizsla, Star Wars Legends and connections to the Clone Wars and Rebel shows. We got some really cool stuff to talk about here. Um, so that will be at the end of today's episode. But before we get things going, as usual, I gotta go over all of my social media stuff in case anybody wants to know how to get in touch with me. Uh, for my Instagram, you can find me at Anna with the comics because Anna is my name and I do have the comics. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Savage She Geek, which is a lot less regularly updated than it should be, probably. And my website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. For now, you have to have the Weebly extension in there because I have not been able to um, pay for it yet <laughs> to end up having it just as my own domain name. That would be great. But I haven't gotten there yet, so you still have to have the Weebly in there. But what you can find on that site, um, on the front page right now, I have um, some highlights about Madeline Pryor, a.k.a. the Goblin Queen, Ileana Rasputin, a.k.a. Magic, and Clea, a.k.a. the new Sorcerer Supreme in now-ish, but also coming into her own series in March 2022. You can also find my podcast notes, which are pretty much just um, the, the, the write-up I do before the podcast to make sure that I hit all the points that I want to hit, um, which I keep there for anyone who would rather read what is going on instead of listen, or of course for anyone who is hearing impaired, they can still keep up with the podcast. 
all of all of my old work that I've done, um, pick list, pull list, I did a lot of writing before transitioning that into the podcast about, well, yes, it was a, just over a year ago. I had my one year anniversary episode on Friday, so that's pretty exciting. Um, but you can find all of that writing still under the archive on my website's blog. Um, and then the last thing that you can find on the website are links to everywhere that you can listen to this podcast, which does include the majority of podcast hosting apps. And that also it does include YouTube. They're all in a playlist. And I also have um, in a single playlist together a bunch of action figure review videos over the past couple of years. Uh, my most recent upload was actually just a couple of days ago, unboxing and reviewing the Hasbro Marvel Legends binary figure. This is one who is set to be a Walgreens exclusive here in the U.S., but she hasn't really started appearing much at stores yet, if at all. I'm not really sure anybody's really gotten her. So for my birthday, my husband ordered me one from the UK, so I have my nice little review figure. It's the same figure without uh, the Walgreens label and such that will be on the US boxes. I also go over a bit of the character's comic book history, including uh, showing off <laughs> some of the keys in my collection around Carol Danvers, um, and also showing pages of Binary's first appearance in my own personal issue of Uncanny X-Men 164. Finally, I do have a podcast Patreon if you would like to have any kind of donation set up on regularly for the podcast. Um, the John Suntrees, I believe is his name, from Word Balloon, he, uh, he says for his, you know, it's whatever you feel the value of the podcast you get, that's um, completely voluntary, as is everything. Um, and there's also Ko-fi, Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal, uh, which you can also do all linked in my link tree uh, at the bottom of each episode's description. And anything that comes through those goes directly to keeping the podcast up and running um, between Podbean and getting a domain of my own set up, uh, and then hopefully being able to do more marketing and things like that so I can actually um, get, get a bit more of a listening pod, listening pool here. Um, it's, it's fun with what we have, but I would love to broaden the audience. Without further ado though, let's go ahead and let's start this baby. We have some really interesting stuff to go over for the news, but I kind of wanted to start it off uh, with, with with some stuff that I've, like pop culture, I suppose, related stuff that I have been uh, keeping up with aside from what you might call directly the, the, the various geek industries. Um, there's because there's some things that have been really very strongly popping up in pop culture uh, on streaming services that people really get on board with and I, I like those things too. Um, <laughs> namely what I'm talking about right now, um, a couple of shows that I binged over the weekend, to, um, one of which is less popular I think for sure, but um, Yellow Jackets being one of them, uh, highly <laughs> recommend that. Uh, I would say definitely, um, I guess you would say trigger warning on that one for a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, a lot of stuff, yeah. You can go to actually the um, Does the Dog Die website, or Does the Dog Live website, I think is what it is, and they will have a list of things that appear in the show um, in case there's things that you would like to avoid. I totally get that. But a uh, fantastic show. Um, really cool mystery. Um, 
and also a bit of a um, plane crash survivor lost type story, which I always dig. Um, <laughs> disaster story, maybe, is what better way to say that. Um, but it was fantastic. I binged all of season one. I think it was ten episodes or possibly eight episodes, whichever it was, I got that out. I, we were, we were sick of last week, so we stayed home and watched TV. <laughs> the second show that I watched, uh, was, oh gosh, The Woman in the House, what is the whole title? The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window, is that what the title is? Yes, that is it. Or the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. Yes, which is a um, some number of episodes take with Kristen Bell, who I have mixed feelings about. But uh, however many episode take on the Hitchcock movie, The Rear Window, or just Rear Window as Notha, um, which I that's probably my favorite Hitchcock movie. Um, I don't know. Do people? have favorite I haven't seen all of them for sure but uh, that's the one that I refer to when I think about Hitchcock because that's one that I actually like um so this was like a cool modern twisty take on that and the end of it is 100% not what you would expect I don't think the ending really comes from anything like the rear window or rear window um they definitely have their own take on that and of course there's a lot of being a modern uh, update to it more or less. There's a lot of different things that are um, changed for it and the scenarios are completely different. It's it's You'll just have to watch it yourself and see. Um, really easy to binge that one in a day or less. <laughs> oh here it says eight episodes. That's how many episodes. Um, really enjoyed it. It's uh, Shelley Henning is in it as well. Um, Mary Holland who is a hilarious writer as well as actress. Um, Michael Ely plays her ex-husband, um, and I don't honestly know who Tom Riley is, but he also plays a main character. Uh, the third one that I watched was The Orbital Children, which was on Netflix. Um, it was just a fun little, like, anime type thing. I don't know. It's, uh, about a bunch of kids who, some of them are born on the moon, some of them visiting the moon, and, um... There's this comment. It was kind of confusing, honestly. I, I I was granted probably not paying attention as much as I could, um, but it was a fun it was a fun watch. Uh, not too many episodes, not too long to watch, um, and that was how I spent the past week or so. So go me. Now the only real speculation that well the only speculation period I suppose that I have to discuss on this week's episode is regarding the character of Layla in the upcoming Disney Plus Moon Knight series. Um, if you're watching the trailer with subtitles on, um, I think you may actually say it out loud at one point, and it's on his phone as well. Um, the character who is she calls him when he is having his crisis, his mental crisis. And she's like, oh, where were you? And calls him Mark, which of course is his comic name, you know, and he's going to be going by, well, we're not really sure what he's going to be going by, but he's having this whole multiple personality uh, disorder thing going on, or dissociative identity disorder. I'm actually very curious to see which label they stick him under, because that does make a difference. Um, but in any case, Layla is a character who knows Mark, apparently. Um, Mark Spector. Um, so people have been trying to figure out who is this Layla character. 
Um, is she somebody from the comics or is she an original character for the show? Um, and this speculation, I have to give credit to uh, the Key Collector Comics app for gathering all of this information. I don't know if that was just based off of stuff that they just found through the internet um, and just general speculation or if this was something they came up with themselves. Um, but I do subscribe to that app to keep up with updates and speculation and key comic prices and things like that because I like to be aware of those kinds of things I'm a nerd. Um, but the point here is uh, the theory that we've got going for the character of Layla is that she is a character named Dr. Emmett from the comics. She first appeared in Moon Knight number one in 2016 and her first name is never revealed. In the first issue um, her first appearance, Mark has a vision that Dr. Emmett, or of Dr. Emmett, as a woman with a crocodile head, showing that she is possessed by the Egyptian god Amut, who is the soul eater. Um, you also get in the trailer, uh, connected to that, when Layla calls him on his phone, it says unknown caller, but, oh, sorry, it doesn't say that, it says unknown caller, sorry. Um, but it does have a crocodile, like, 8-bit kind of image on the screen when she calls. So that could be a little bit of a hint there. Also, in the comics, Dr. Emmett treats a patient who she then leads to becoming the Sun King, who is a avatar of the god Amun-Ra. So the Sun King establishes in the comics a base of operation and ultimately becomes a cult leader with Dr. Emmett continuing to be one of his worshippers. Now, Ethan Hawke has previously stated in interviews that he used footage of, um, I didn't, I don't remember the name, but it was a notorious real life cult leader, um, to help him with his performance as this character that he's going to be playing in Moon Knight. So in addition, we can clearly see that he has what appears to be a cult leader effect on people from the trailer. So it, there is solid speculation here that he is portraying the Sun King, um, in contrast to... Uh, Moon Knight, who is one of the um, avatars of, of course, Khonshu. And based on Disney's own description of the show, that would make a lot of sense based on what they're saying about there's going to be some kind of drama between the Egyptian gods, um, the, the, the pantheon of Egyptian gods. That would make a lot of sense if you have their earthbound avatars fighting because they're, you know, godly, I don't know why they're, they're godly, um, overlords. I don't know what you, <laughs> you, you get what I'm trying to say. They are fighting. So they're earthly people, AKA, um, these two characters are also fighting. And then Layla comes in and she's, and she's, uh, this Dr. Emmett character from the comics. She probably was helping Ethan Hawke do his weird culty stuff, um, possibly rejecting him and turning towards Mark or um, whatever name he's going to be known as mostly in the show, because we're really still not sure about that. Um, but it all kind of makes sense there, and that's 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 what the updated Moon Knight speculation is, and I, I think that's all pretty solid. Now, a couple of smaller points before we get into the He-Man and Toxic Fandom news. Um, first off, Snowpiercer Season 3 has started. I believe this one is on TNT? 
It would appear that it is on TNT. Um, I mentioned this one specifically because Snowpiercer, I, I know a lot of people don't know this, but Snowpiercer is actually based off of, I say loosely based off of uh, the French graphic novels by the same name. It was, of course, the Chris Evans movie. Snowpiercer uh, was the same based off of the novels, uh, graphic novels, and now the show, same thing. Um, there are three volumes to this. They are again, French, but they have been all re-released in English as well. Um, I, I want to say Boom was the ones who published them. Um, um, not entirely sure, but it was originally published by the publishing company Casterman in French. Um, and the first series, was their first uh, volume was put out in 1982 under the title... I'm not going to try and pronounce that something in French and later titled The Escape in English. Um, I do have all three of these volumes. I have read most of them. I don't think I've read the third one because it was a very long time between the second and the third. Um, they are... You can check them out, but you should know they are... Um, they are very French. <laughs> very French. There is a fair amount of nudity and cigarettes and you know the torment of the people under the foot of the government that was not that was a russian i don't know what i was doing there um just a lot of the you know le miserable um you know just very french <laughs> uh, and it goes very different than both the show and the movie it's much darker and i would probably say much slower too um but it does have a, a little bit of a cult following um and so there are people who really dig the graphic novels um i would totally dig getting a first edition in french i even though i wouldn't be able to read it i think that would just be like a cool like bit of pop culture history to have just saying um but moving on from that we also have more good news mortal kombat 2 has officially been confirmed people kind of we all knew this was going to be happening but now that it has a writer and everything on board it is even more official it is confirmed official uh the studio they ended up hiring jeremy slater to write he has been the head writer on the actual we were just talking about the disney plus moon knight series and apparently he also helped develop the umbrella academy for netflix from dark horse so that's all good signs for somebody to be writing a mortal kombat movie um being somebody who is not very well versed on the mortal kombat stuff you know lore i guess i didn't want to do too much looking into what people are speculating is going to happen in the sequel um because i have no idea what any that would be talking about not a clue whoosh over my head i would be completely pretending to know what i'm talking about um and that makes me super uncomfortable and i don't like doing that for the podcast so i don't um but i did see this one thing which i happened to have heard about uh, when The Rock had tweeted this, and so this was actually kind of funny, um, and I kind of see this as being a bit legitimate. There are theories now that uh, The Rock slash, you know, Dwayne Johnson could be playing in this Mortal Kombat sequel, Shao Kahn, I, I think that's how you would say that, uh, because the, the reasons behind this, uh, just before the sequel was officially confirmed, like a day or two before, The Rock had tweeted something about having been cast 
um, in a video game movie that he himself has played a lot of. Um, and so, of course, there's all the funny jokes about, oh, the Pokemon, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. I doubt The Rock plays Pokemon. Um, but to add on to that, um, the Mortal Kombat creator or co-creator, I, I see that it must be, um, Ed Boon, he tweeted that The Rock would make a great Shao Kahn. Uh, so speculations are a whirl. And I don't blame them because that, I mean, he says he's going to be in a video game movie like a day or two before it's announced. I feel like that's, it's, it's probably like maybe 60% that. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, do I think that he would be good in this? Again, not familiar with... I don't even know who this character is. Um, I just am very curious if this is going to end up being a legitimate rumor. Um, if it's going to end up being factual, I suppose. Because I'm so curious what people would react to that with. Um, but I guess we'll find out whenever we have more developments. And news as of today, well, actually, starting over, we had uh, a couple of months ago, Tom King talked about how he was going to be doing a new indie project through Substack, um, and that was all very nice and good, and we finally had that announced. Um, through Substack, it is going to be called Love Everlasting, following in the tradition of classic romance comic books. Um, his whole reasoning behind this, uh, I'm sure there's more than one or two reasons, but uh, what he posted about on social media today was basically that, you know, at a certain period of time and for a very long time in comic books, the majority of comics being made were romance comics. Um, Patsy Walker, she herself being a romance comic star, um, and Tom King, of course, being, if you didn't know that, I feel like you definitely don't understand any of his work, being a large fan of romance. <laughs> if, you didn't, if you didn't pick up on that one, I don't know what to tell you. Um, he's literally been chronicling Batman and Catwoman's romance for the past four years. No, for the past six, six years. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm getting off topic here a little bit. So now we have Love Everlasting, and the artist going along with this series is Elsa, I'm sorry, I'm going to pronounce your last name wrong, Chartier, <laughs> it's definitely not how that's said, um, but it is free, it is currently free, the first issue is up on Substack, you can go to uh, Twitter where he has it linked there, uh, and I imagine the artist has it linked on her page, social media as well, um, but I, I flipped through the first few pages of it and it appears to be multiple stories of little, little love stories in one issue, um, and I read the first one and it was a classic uh, kind of cheesy romance comic. Um, with some really fantastic period-like art. So, fun stuff to look forward to, um, if you're all interested in that. Um, it is called, once again, Love Everlasting. And now I would like to go over this little thought piece, I guess you might call it, uh, that I have titled, The Netflix Live Action He-Man and Toxic Fandom. I'm not very good at short titles. Um, <laughs> but because this week we did have the announcement that there is going to be a new live action He-Man show on Netflix, um, I felt like this was something worth exploring just a little bit. Um, 
in case you were unaware, the Masters of the Universe saga of shows, movies, comics, and more are all based off of the original 1982 Mattel toy line. The toys were not based off of the media. The media was based off of the toys. Fun fact, it's kind of hilarious when you think about it. Um, and why did they design them like that? If they weren't based off character designs, why did they just choose very... Um, very, very homosexual look for He-Man. <laughs> um, just bare-chested, basically got a loincloth. Like, it's pretty funny. Um, but that's what it is. The first live-action movie that they ever made for this was made by Canon Films in 1987, which was shortly after the peak of the toys and the cartoon, which came out in 83. Uh, and this movie from Canon Films in 87 came, uh, it starred Dolph Lundgren of the, the good old Dolph as He-Man. But of course the movie was a failure at the box office and didn't go very far. Now, as for this new series, uh, we have a couple of statements from people who are from uh, the studio and from Mattel. So the first one here, he says, Robbie Brenner, who is the executive producer of Mattel Films, says, Masters of the Universe is an iconic property that shaped the imaginations of an entire generation of kids with the message of becoming the best version of yourself most bare-chested version of yourself. Um, with our partners at Netflix, we look forward to showing audiences that anything can happen in Eternia. We are continuing to unlock this global franchise in new ways, and we can't wait to see Kyle battle it out with Skeletor in this live-action uh, epic saga. Uh, that's Kyle being Kyle Allen, who has been cast as He-Man. Uh, we also have from the producers Todd Black, Jason Blumenthal, and Steve Tisch. They say, We've always been inspired by the fantastical world of Eternia. This movie has been 14 me Oh, it's okay. It's, it's going to be a movie. Just kidding. This movie has been 14 years in the making for us and our partners, and we are so excited to tell an entirely new story for Masters of the Universe with the Knee Brothers and Dave... Callahan for Mattel and Netflix and share it with a global audience. Um, this is all well and good, of course, um, but it's worth remembering um, that in 2021, we, we just had a Masters of the Universe and it was fantastic. Um, in 2021, uh, Netflix and Mattel originally partnered for the first time to bring us Masters of the Universe Revelation, which was a two-drop, ten-episode animated series, and it is a was a continuation of the classic 80s storyline. It had Kevin Smith as the showrunner for the series and featured an incredible cast of all-star fan-favorite voice actors that included Mark Hamill, Lena Headey, Chris Wood, and Sarah Michelle Gellar, all of whom recorded their lines over Zoom, believe it or not. Sounds fantastic, right? Well, due to the fact that the series was focused on characters that were not just He-Man and Skeletor battling it out, having pissing contests, uh, but rather the broader Masters of the Universe, as the title would suggest, some self-proclaimed fans of He-Man and the He-Man saga were somehow found very enraged by this. Uh, how dare they put an attractive female as one of the main characters for these episodes on my man show? 
is pretty much what it all sounded like. So here we have, I'm sorry to report, another case of toxic fandom ruining something for the rest of us. After the unignorable, frankly, cries of outrage from the most embarrassing sides of geekdom, Kevin Smith has had enough and has come out now saying publicly that after the experience of making Masters of the Universe for Netflix, he will likely never work on a project that is not his own IP again, IP being of course intellectual property. For me, this is a total loss to the geek community. Uh, those of us well-behaved enough to enjoy what we're given and keep our critiques and expectations in check with reality. Kevin Smith will be fine, of course. He's a legend in the comics community. He will be just fine. But I am very much saddened that we won't be getting any further Master of the, of the Universe stories from him. I really loved that show. He made He-Man and his friends more than a laughingstock for me. Uh, something, I, I am someone who did not grow up with the toys or the other media based off of Masters of the Universe. It was a joke. So before the Kevin Smith show, I just didn't care. It didn't interest me. And honestly, those previous projects still don't. I will be watching this next version in this movie um, because I'm curious if it'll be good, but my expectations are honestly very low after seeing how... seeing how hard fans push back against supposed fans push back against a different kind of delightful take um and and then the whole reason they were mad is because it wasn't enough he-man and skeletor um and then it came out with the second part and there was a whole bunch more he-man and skeletor in the second part so <sighs> people but as i was saying earlier kyle allen who plays one of the Jets in the Spielberg West Side Story. He's going to be starring as Prince Adam slash He-Man. I am very curious because it seems he's going to be playing both characters from what I can tell. He-Man isn't quite like the Hulk, but he is a much larger, more buff version of Prince Adam traditionally. So I wonder if they're going to have him do a Clark Kent and just be like a really in-shape prince who covers up a lot and then turns out to be openly buff he-man just with like a different suit and attitude you know the whole put the mask on take the mask off kind of thing we'll we'll have to see one and of course more updates will come as they become available now let's talk about comic book picks these were comics that came out this past wednesday the 26th of january and for DC Comics Tuesday the 25th. What I'm going to be going over here in a little bit more depth is going to be Death of Doctor Strange number 5, Iron Man number 16, but know that I am just here for Patsy, the Bat-Cat special, Saga 55, the last issue of Wonder Girl, the return of Monstrous, Devil's Reign number 3, Human Target number 4, and Black Panther number three. So starting off up top there with Death of Doctor Strange number five, this of course follows up with the reveal that it was Kaiselius who killed him. Um, and due to, you know, magical, magical reasons, um, they managed to get Steven basically inserted into Kaiselius's body for a while. Um, and the series ends with Steven handing off his cloak and the Eye of Agamotto to Clea, making her effectively the next Sorcerer Supreme of Earth. Uh, no explanation so far on why she is going to be wearing the Alex Ross designed outfit from Earth X as her Sorcerer, Sup Sorcerer Supreme look. Um, and not this one that she is already in now, but I'm hoping the outfit change will get explained since it is pretty drastic change. Um, 
There was also no explanation on who is going to be watching over the dark dimension while she is uh, Sorcerer Supreming on Earth. And there has still not really been an explanation as to why she was even the Sorcerer Supreme of the dark dimension when that has always, well, not always, but that has been, I mean, as recent as her last most recent appearance it has always been um, Dormammu. So I'm not really sure how all that's continuity is a bit off, but we'll ignore that. I also still firmly believe that we saw uh, the um, the outfit that we saw Cleo wearing in this series is what she's going to be wearing in the MCU, uh, who is again rumored to be played by Charlize Theron. And I also wanted to mention here, I figured out why I like the idea of Charlize Theron's casting so much. Clea is decidedly much younger than Steven in the comics, um, and, and especially specifically portrayed to be that way in the first decades of their relationship. They even go as far as to call her a girl instead of a woman, sorceress, or literally any other term that doesn't connotate a young age. <laughs> um, and so having a more even age, age, you know, difference between her and Steven in the MCU is going to be a bit of a relief for me <laughs> to say for sure. Now let's talk Iron Man number 16 once again. We are here for Patsy and only Patsy. Um, we learned through a conversation that Reed Richards, he's now fixed, quote unquote fixed, the scar on Patsy's face that happened earlier on in the series events. Um, her comment on it was, I thought it made me pretty fierce, which is nice because I think Patsy is definitely at a point in her life where she is not gonna just sit back and be like, yeah, um, I need to fix my physical form because it's ugly. <laughs> like, that's, that's not, we don't do that in comics anymore. That's not a thing. Um, Isaac, who is Gargoyle, uh, he, we learned he owns an oyster bar <laughs> and for whatever reason, Frogman works for him and... He asks them for promotion from busser to server while they're out while they're out to lunch. It's kind of awkward, but it's really funny. Um, and then Hellcat and Space Tony or whatever they fight um, Big Wheel because he's back for whatever reason. After Tony gives everybody Stark level genius, which is actually just making everyone think the way that Tony would, of course. Uh, then it turns out that. Big Wheel was just trying to help stop traffic or something, and Patsy gets mad at Tony and tells him that he is just like Korvac, making everybody think just like him. So, the end of the issue, Patsy goes to Doctor Doom for help in getting Tony back down to his normal power level of human. Now, the Batman Catwoman special uh, is a bit more that we're going to talk about here, um, because it was really really great and I have gone over the Tom King um the Tom King layout of Bruce and Selena's relationship as he has written it between 2016 and today um it is a lot of of information um it contains I don't over a hundred comics I believe um at this point well 85 he did 85 issues of batman i don't know how many but it, it's it's a very very um 
beautiful romance that he has chronicled for them. Um, and this is just another iteration in here. So this issue is also a tribute to the late Jean-Paul Lyon, um, which takes place after the main issue and was incredibly heartfelt and the art is fantastic. I would definitely say this issue is worth checking out for that tribute section alone. The story part of the issue chronicles for us the life and times of Selena Kyle, but told through the Christmases over her life, um, starting with when she was found in a dumpster as a baby by some stray cats on Christmas, and she winds up in the Wayne home for orphaned children, which is not a fantastic place, but it is a roof over her head, and growing up she would talk to Bruce Wayne in the large Wayne family portrait on the wall about her life, about the holidays, about what she thinks his life is like, and then about his parents after their murder. She eventually broke out of the orphanage, crashing onto the ground and being found by stray cats again. She spends Christmas in the sewer with Killer Croc, if I'm not mistaken, and then we see her life as a criminal begin, stealing jewelry from fancy people on the street on another Christmas. We see her first trip to prison, where she smuggles in a kitten and starts fights to protect it. We see her drunkenly walking across a wire on the walking across a wire across the high building tops on another Christmas, robbing a horrid pervert on another. Solitary confinement at Arkham over the holidays, then she spends Christmas with the Joker, where based off their costumes, we can clearly tell they're both very early on in their careers. The next Christmas we see has Batman and Catwoman kissing on a rooftop as police radios squawk about a jewelry heist. Then it's her Jim Balin outfit as she fights Batman on Christmas inside a museum, then an awkward-looking Christmas as just Bruce and Selina. A Christmas at the Wayne Mansion before Bruce wakes up, with Selina gazing at the same Wayne family portrait. In her Jim Lee suit, she takes out the Joker on Christmas to his displeasure. Another year, she and Batman swing through the city, with him questioning her about the missing tree topper from the Gossam Plaza Christmas tree. And then she's pregnant on Christmas, singing, her unborn, singing to her unborn baby as Batman returns from a night out. After this, we see Selina in her gray and black suit like in Batcat, where I realized, holy shit, in the modern era of Batcat, they already have had Helena. That's going to be a really sick reveal. Uh, Bruce and Selina embrace by their Christmas tree. Helena is gifted a sword. She and her mother talk about the same Wayne family portrait together on Another Christmas. Then Selina fights the Joker, wanting to kill him, but just leaving him scarred because she already made the promise to Bruce not to kill him. Then it's Batman trying to convince Catwoman to let their daughter be, be a Robin. Clearly she uses that one because the next Christmas is Helena in her Robin suit, and another Christmas with the Bat, Cat, and Robin all tied up over some hungry-looking alligators for some quality family time, no doubt. Much later, it's a Christmas with Selina and Bruce as an older couple. She assures him that their daughter will be the one to answer the bat signal tonight. A much more sad Christmas is Catwoman bringing an elderly Joker back to the rest home or hospital he wandered out of, his head confused with dementia. Another more solemn Christmas where Bruce gifts his wife a diamond and has it put on display so she can go steal it for herself. She is very much moved by this gift. Another Christmas is spent together on a beach, then mother and daughter race across rooftops in Gotham. Bruce Wayne vomits into a toilet on Christmas, knowing Dr. Phosphorus has finally killed him all these years later. Then it's Selina alone at Bruce's grave on Christmas, just missing him. She spends one Christmas on a rooftop overlooking Gotham, taking care of strays. Then she, does, then she makes a donation to the orphanage she grew up in, 
which is now called the Selena Wayne home, but with a new era of family Wayne portrait at the front. Wayne family portrait at the front. It's with Selena, Bruce, and Helena. Plus, she apparently made the rule that each child must be given a cat. And finally, we see Selena's last Christmas taking care of strays in an alley again when she's shot by a robber and her life ends very much as it began in an alley with some cats. Personally, I was pretty surprised that he actually went all the way through there and showed the death of Selena Kyle. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. We He's told us about the death of Bruce Wayne for quite some time now. Um... I would rec highly recommend Batman Annual Number Two, um, which has the titles "Date Nights and Last Rites." Um, that is a uh, easily one of my favorite single comic issues of all time, um, and I think it would be. It, it was honestly, it's it's kind of like a prequel to Batcat. Um, it, it sort of kicked off the whole way of storytelling that he does with Batcat. So uh, definitely recommend that if you're into this relationship. Um, and then you can check out all of Tom King's other Batman uh, writing so that you can learn all about what he's chronicled of their relationship. Now for Saga number 55, this was the grand return of one of the, if not the most popular comic of all time. Uh, in short, uh, I do not know of a new release that has not only generated this level of excitement, but one that has also lived up to it. That is Saga for you. <laughs> Boom. That's perfect. Uh, this issue, of course, this is going to be spoiling it, so if you haven't read it, go away. Uh, this issue picks up three years after the events of The Last, with Alana living with her daughter and Prince Robot's son, as well as Bombazine, uh, the weird creature guy from the cover. No, he is not her lover. He is her, um, like, teammate, partner, I guess. Uh, he lives with them in the treehouse, which has adapted through the years, but can still fly. Hazel misses her dad, of course. Um... But Prince Robot's son is there as her brother, so she at least has something to fall back on. Uh, we learn that Alana and Bombazine work together as smugglers, and of course they are in a little bit of a pinch now. Meanwhile, we catch up with The Will. He's back into fighting shape, and he comes to Gwendolyn, who is now in charge of their guild. They have... Glorious X-rated sex. Again, this comic is not for kids. Uh, and then Will pulls out the head of Marco, or rather, the skull of Marco. That is so dark. <laughs> He's been carrying Marco's head around for three years. Dude. Super dark. Uh, and of course, we do see Lion Cat again. So, um, all is well in the world once again with Saga's return. Wonder Girl number seven was the unfortunate final issue. Uh, unfortunately final, the issue itself was not unfortunate. This is by Joel Jones, with art by Leila Del Duca, and colors by Jordi Belair. And I still cannot believe how well Leila Del Duca mimics Joel Jones' art. It is uncanny. Um, totally uncanny. I love it. It's fantastic. And as it turns out, uh, the man who back in the day killed Yara's mother and who came now to Olympus to challenge her again turns out to be Eros. She wins the battle, of course, and he takes his love arrow spell thing out of her so that she is free. 
and that was pretty much that was pretty much it. Because next time that we're gonna see her is Trial of the Amazons, which starts on March first, which is just about a month away. With Trial of Trial of the Amazons number one. You know that actually is kind of funny. So March first, and let's see, that's a Tuesday. Yep, March first and February first are both Tuesdays. That's kind of funny. Guess that's what happens when you have seven day weeks and 28 days in a month. Wow. <laughs> I'm getting off track here. Um, Monstrous number 36 was the return of Monstrous in 2021. Again, love this book, love this world that they built, and love this team. Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda are fantastic and they have created one of the most phenomenal universes um in monstrous uh there's a lot has a lot of politics in monstrous all the time so it's a little bit difficult to always go through and explain what's going on because there's so much built up um but where we left off with issue 35 was Micah was poisoned by her oldest friend and lover <laughs> uh and now in issue 36 uh she is she has been poisoned and so the people that who uh, Micah's ex work for can basically just do what they want with her. It's a lot of politics, like I said, which is normal for Monstrous, but they make it interesting um, because this is a matriarchal, semi-magical, semi-animal society. Very cool. Um, when we see how Micah is doing on the inside internally, uh, we see that she is literally fighting off the infection um, or at least out of its control, because then we see that she has potentially broken through, um, I guess, to the other realm of the gods? <laughs> the place where Zin is from? I'm honestly not sure. Um, but the next issue will definitely... <laughs> I'm sure they'll explain it a little better for us in the next issue. We'll, we'll figure it out. Devil's Reign number three was a pretty good issue. Johnny Storm and the Thing, they started off by saving Ben Riley Spider-Man from being killed, pretty much killed by cops. Uh, Luke Cage, he's officially starting his run for mayor. Kristen McDuffie talks to Sue Storm in jail and Sue steals a paperclip, so she's obviously got something up her sleeve now, literally now. Um, I also think that it was interesting that Kristen calls her Ms. Storm, not Mrs. Richards. Um, I think Chip did that on purpose because they're both two professional women and she probably recognizes that this would be Sue's preferred name. Um, and we have, of course, Fisk is planning on using the Purple Man to get elected. Um, they talk about Daredevil's identity and how Fisk knows he used to know, but his mind was wiped like everybody else's. So he decides to use the Purple Children too, um, who themselves are on their way to kill their dad. So that is probably not going to be very good for the Purple Man. <laughs> either, either way, he's probably not making it out of this. Meanwhile, the heroes figure out that Fisk is using Purple Man, and they decide that something has to be done. But then they are attacked by the Superior Four, which is, of course, Doc Ock, Logan Ock, Hulk Ock, and Ghost Rider Ock. <laughs> it's honestly pretty funny. Um, it is revealed at the end of the issue that Iron Man, who we thought was Iron Man, is actually Chameleon working for Ock because he was supposed to get Iron Man to run for mayor, and they were like, no, 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 we're gonna do Luke Cage. And so that blew up Ox planned, and so now he's mad, or whatever. <laughs> and then, of course, the issue ends with Foggy being potentially murdered, so... <laughs> 
it wouldn't be the first time. Wouldn't be the first time to say. Human target number four is, of course, day four of 12 of Christopher Chance trying to figure out who killed him, which is a complicated question because it's a 12-day poison in his system with no antidote, and he was poisoned when he was undercover as Lex Luthor, so it's un- it's really- they're not sure if somebody was trying to kill him or Luthor. It's a bit complicated, you know? Uh, today, on day four, he takes ice to Ted Cord, who is Booster Gold's best friend, also the Blue Beetle of this era. Um, really cool issue. I know I mentioned earlier Tom King being a, a fan of romance and uh, a loving to write romance, uh, <laughs> and we talked a little bit about that in the Batcat special that came out this week, uh, when I just went over that a minute ago, but... <laughs> The human target, dude, he is, um, it's like a love letter to love. I, I, I'm, I, or possibly to his wife. I'm not really sure, but his character, Christopher Chance, is so head over heels in love with, uh, Ice, the character Ice. Um, it's unbelievable how he writes it. This, this this one line I had to put here that I'm going to quote in a second. Um, you know, what is that song, Take Me to Church? Is that about drugs or is it about relationships? You know, most songs could go either way. But it kind of makes me think of that. Um, the line is, she isn't a superhero, she's a god. And all I can do is get down on my knees and pray. Tom King! <laughs> Moving on, uh, Black Panther number three by Oscar-winning writer and director, excuse me, John Ridley, um, who actually just has, came out with another new movie on, I want to say it's on HBO Max, um, um, I think it's got Orlando Bloom in it, that's all I remember. Um, on this episode, I mean, in this issue, <laughs> the child goes to Mars, which is aka Araco. Uh, Storm and he meet happily, which I was kind of surprised by. Uh, but then it turns out that she and him are back together. When did that happen? When did I miss that? Um, and doesn't that make things pretty severely complicated? Because doesn't Wakanda reject Krakoa? Uh, but her title now is Regent of Araco and Voice of the Solar System, which is fucking baller. You get him, girl. Uh, she did. She got him. I love Storm. Um, there is a whole big fight scene with Gentle, who is a mutant, but then it turns out that it was a whole ruse, and Gentle is actually the one who T'Challa came for. He's one of T'Challa's agents, so that was a pretty cool twist. Uh, T'Challa tells him that they, um, that he tells him about the other agent's death, and it's kind of an emotional scene, and they hug it out, and it's really cute. It's nice. Uh, and then they have two other stories in the issue because this is Black Panther number 200 if you're going by the legacy numbering so yay um, but the third story is the other one I wanted to mention um, it's a boy narrating how uh, it's really interesting he's he's narrating basically how um, his his clan left the main city of Wakanda uh, and, and moved off to the like outer fields and things because they believe that Wakanda has become greedy in all things. Um, the way that they kind of described it, I'm not sure who wrote this, this third story, but the way that they kind of describe it is that 
Uh, I mean, the best way I can think of to to, to do just like a quick summary of what they were saying was Wakanda has been taken over by consumerism um, and likely capitalism too, um, which is totally understandable. And so his this kid's clan they they reject. Uh, technology and they have developed a relationship with the vibranium in the earth um, making it into tattoos and things and those tattoos apparently can give them powers because they have made that much of a connection with the vibranium so this particular young man um, who's narrating he goes to the new Wakandan parliament uh, because remember Wakanda recently decided to become a democracy instead of um the other one where they have a king <laughs> uh so he shows shit he shows up to parliament to see if they've if they have a country have made any changes but he sees that it's still run by greed um and is very disappointed and i'm sure he's going to be a pretty key character in this um john ridley run but i'm very interested to see where it goes for the comic book polls this week, again, these are things coming out tomorrow the 1st and Wednesday the 2nd of November. Um, I'm going to be going over the solicitations of the number one issues, and then we'll cover the the rest of them a bit faster. Um, starting off with the Red Sonia Valentine's Day Special 2022. This one is going to be pretty cool because it's written by Chuck Brown, uh, who was the co-creator of Bitterroot which is a series that I really enjoy, and it is drawn by Lee Ferguson. There's also going to be a cover by Sozo Micah, who I would definitely say is an artist you should put on your artist to watch list. Uh, it says, Burning Love, Red Sonia's, temporary, Red Sonia's temporarily develop firepowers, which is handy since she's in a land where warlords possess deadly ice powers. Sonia finds herself amidst a lover's quarrel in which someone exchanged their heart and soul, quite literally, for overwhelming power. Can Sonia defeat a greedy cherub ogre and restore peace to the freezing lands? I don't know, but it sounds fun, and it comes from Dynamite. Land of the Living Gods, number one. To be honest, I'm not sure if this is coming out this week or next week. I could not find... A single answer anywhere uh, but it's being written by Isaac Mogajane and arted by Santos that's it just Santos uh, it's coming from Aftershock Comics and what they have to say about it is it is said that when the world dies the spirits of the first people will return to witness the last days of humanity well the spirits have arrived and the end is here but not everyone has given up hope Naledi, a teen teenage girl living in the deserted city once called Johannesburg, has always believed that there is a land hidden away in time where the gods still live, and that, and where the, and where there are gods, there are miracles, perhaps even miracles that are big enough to save our dying planet. And so, after a lifetime of isolation, Naledi will head out into the unknown with little to hold on to but her faith and her magical pet plant, Buyo. A fairy tale for the times in which we find ourselves, brought to life by South African writer and producer Isaac Mugajane and Brazilian artist Santos. I think that sounds really fun. I'm also loving all of the non-American comic creators who have been popping up with new indie comics recently. Um, that is how you keep the industry thriving! <sighs> Primos number one is coming from AWA, upshot by Al Madrigal and Brian River. It says, centuries ago, two Mayan brothers 
constructed a spaceship that sent them hurtling into outer space, returned to Earth only to find their culture and civilization destroyed, one of the brothers vows to seek revenge. Vows revenge and seeks to decimate the plant planet sorry i'm stumbling over my words with intergalactic technology gathered on his travels to prevent this his sibling creates a contingency plan that activates the world's pro protectors descendants of their own family now the fate of the planet lies in the hands of three cousins scattered throughout central and north america who have never even met sounds sick new masters number one is an image comic from shobo and shoff coker 2019 creators for creators grant recipients, Nigerian brothers Shobo and Shoff, present New Masters, a groundbreaking blend of science fiction, adventure, drama, and vibrant Afrofuturism. In a striking vision of West Africa under the thumb of alien colonizers, a motley crew of outcasts find themselves caught up in a power struggle for control of an ancient artifact with immense power. I should have done a little bit on Afrofuturism. Damn. Maybe I'll do that when I once I read this comic um, and confirm that it is in fact quality. Um, maybe I will talk about Afrofuturism next week. Um, I know that I have talked about it on my blog, my written blog, before I started the podcast. So if you want to see what I have to say about Afrofuturism and what that all is, you can check it there. I don't know if I have a tag for it. I'm not sure, honestly. Um, but it's it's a really neat concept. Um, I love to see more of those kinds of things happening in pop culture. So this is one that I'm not going to be missing. The Monkey Prince number one is a DC comic by Jean Luen Yang and Bernard Chang. It is a celebration of Asian history coming just in time for Lunar New Year. So introducing the newest hero in the DCU, the great sage, equal to the heavens, better than his predecessors, the legendary Monkey King, even better than the Justice League, and definitely the Teen Titans, actually all the heroes combined, everyone put your hands together for the Monkey Prince. Marcus' son moves around a lot because his adoptive parents are freelance hench people, so this month he finds himself as a new kid at Gotham City High School, where a mysterious man with pig features asks Marcus to walk through a water curtain to reveal himself as who Marcus really is, someone who has adventured through the journey to the West, can transform into 72 different formations, can clone himself using his hairs, and is called the Monkey Prince. This is one that I'll be getting to support um, representation of Asians and Asian Americans in comics. And it's something that is very important to me. We also have Excellent Number One by Peter Milligan and Michael and Laura Allred. This is from Marvel, of course. I actually remember going over this when I was talking about solicitations a few months ago. It's finally here. They were loved by their adoring fans. They were reviled by the harsh press. They lived, they loved, they fought, and they died. A lot. All for the sake of fame. They were the Ecstatics, a team of mutant celebrities fighting for a brighter world and an even brighter spotlight. But they're old news now because it's a new mutant team that will live harder, love harder, fight harder, and die a whole lot harder than those has-beens. I think it's pretty funny sounding. I think I already talked about um, Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser Halcyon Legacy because it's been pushed back a whole bunch. Uh, but hopefully coming out this week with a variant cover by my one of my favorite up and coming artists, Kaspar Wingard. Somebody tell me how to say it. It's W-I-J-N-G-A-A-R-D. Please tell me how to say that. <laughs> 
Uh, and that covers our number ones for the week. Then we have Daredevil Woman Without Fear number two of three by Chip Zarsky with art by Raphael Delator. Dark Knights of Steel number four of 12 by Tom Teeler and not, not Yasmin Putri. It is actually guest artist Bengal with colorist Arif Prianto. This one I do have a solicitation for because this shit rocks. Child of the Gods, The Arrival of the Elves by Spaceship 19 Years Earlier was a pivotal moment for the kingdom, and a prophecy was born. But what were these early years like for the elves, and how did they come to be monarchs of the kingdom? And what catastrophic event triggered anything, ooh, everything that was to follow? I have been digging Dark Knights of Steel so much! It is so good! If you are not reading it, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. You're missing out. We also have Mirka Andolfo's Sweet Paprika number 7 of 12 by, you guessed it, Mirka Andolfo. And finally, Spider Woman number 19 by Carla Pacheco and Perry Perez, being a der- der- Devil's Reign tie in. Now, for this next section, the Book of Boba Fett episode 5, I had so much fun gathering up all of the information and the Easter eggs and the little you know, things that might need some explaining and contextualizing, and ah, I had so much fun um, going over this episode over and over again. (laughs) Because, of course, this episode titled Return of the Mandalorian was the return of Din Djarin the Mandalorian. Ba-ba-boom. This was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. She did a phenomenal job trying to keep it child-friendly here. Um, she did Mando season one's episode, The Sanctuary, and season two's episode, The Heiress. Or I guess season one, one was the just Sanctuary, not The Sanctuary. I don't know if it matters. Um, this episode now, The Turn of the Mandalorian, takes place entirely following Din Djarin from, of course, The Mandalorian, and it has so much to love. I am a really big fan of the armor who has a good meaty bit in this episode. We also have some really juicy Star Wars lore references, uh, references to the prequels, sick weapons used in fights, uh, a lot of Amy Sedaris as Pelimoto, who, in case you don't remember, is the hilarious tiny puppy haired mechanic that we met in Mando, and so much more. So it's really, I've seen this episode three times. I've so enjoyed it. I would probably watch it again too. So this is now, of course, post-Grogu. It looks like Mando is going back to his bounty hunting days. We later learned that what he was searching for for this particular prize um, was as trade for information on how to find wherever it is Grogu is with his own kind, aka the Jedi. Speaking of the Jedi, actually, the title is a reference to Return of the Jedi one of the, of course, original movies. Um, And depending on who you ask, it could be have some deep meaning about how, oh, Jedi and Mandalorians are so different. And then it's, I think it's just a reference. Back to the show. Um, Mando easily takes out more than a handful of Klaatuinian, Klaatuinian, it's a fun one to say, Klaatuinian. He takes out a bunch of their thugs in the back of meat butcher production, place um and then he leaves with the head of their boss leaves them with all the cash which is pretty funny he also leaves with a nasty burn on his leg which he gave himself on accident with a dark saber clearly din is not used to this weapon yet his destination with the head is basically halo it's a giant ring city that is apparently called glavis 
Um, and yes, Giant Ring City, as in giant ring in space with a city built around the ring. It even has rotating daylight sections, which is pretty cool. He trades this information, he trades this head for the information that he needs, and then heads, no pun intended, to the local Mandalorian hideout, which he finds using his helmet's heat sensor to f discover the mythosaur marking of the Mandalorians. Did you know that was called a mythosaur? Now you do. On the very edge of the city, he be overlooking the emptiness of space, we find the armor. And with her, Paz Vizsla, aka commonly known as Heavy Mando. The armor, fun fact, is played by Emily Swallow, who has also played God's sister in Supernatural, voiced Dracula's wife in Castlevania, as well as Emily in The Last of Us, and has a lot more credits under her belt. Feels very fitting that she adds this role to that resume. Paz Vizsla is also more than likely voiced by Jon Favreau, although it was not him in the suit. Obviously, Mando is here for help in a few different ways. After they get his leg healed up a bit, he asks the armorer to make the Beskar spear he got from Ahsoka in Season 2 of Mando into something for the foundling child Grogu, a gift. Now, actually, a quick note about that Beskar spear. The armorer does make a mention that the Beskar was not meant to be used as weapons. Um, not in that particular sense, at least. So, to, to break it down is appropriate. So... Uh, we get to see her make whatever this gift is, and we see some little tiny chain links, <laughs> but we don't see the item itself, and she wraps it up in a little cloth, and it, it ends up looking like a little Grogu head-shaped package. It's so cute. <laughs> My bet is that it's a little chainmail suit of some kind. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to find out. <laughs> Um, so then Mando, he obviously has a dark saber on him, of course, and it does not go unnoticed by these two. They're now a clan of three, by the way. Everybody else from season one of Mando, all those Mandalorians, it's just these three. Uh, it is very interesting for me uh, to see where the armor's allegiance lie and continue to lie each time something comes up. She works towards it would seem, the resurrection of the one true free Mandalore. So she isn't necessarily out here to make Din their leader. She just wants a true leader. And we get into a lot of the history of the Darksaber and Mandalore with that. The Darksaber was created by Tar Vizsla, an ancestor of Paz Vizsla, and the only Mandalorian Jedi in history. Whoever holds the Darksaber shall rule Mandalore. That is what they earn when they have the saber. The legend or prophecy, whatever you want to call it, it says that the true leader of Mandalore must win the saber in battle, though, not through any other means. For example, Pokatan Kree's, she says, the armor says, did not win the saber by creed, is the term she uses, because she was gifted the saber from Sabine Wren in the Rebels animated show. The armor would suggest that due to this, her rule was not true, hence the downfall of their planet and people under her reign, according to the armor. The armor does take some time to train in with the saber, using their homeworld language of Mandoa for callouts as they fight. The word she uses is solus, tad, and en, meaning one, two, three. She tells Din of the Night of a Thousand Tears, the Imperial Bombardment of Mandalore. We see flashbacks of ships dropping bombs, destroying 
everything on the ground. More flashbacks show KX series droids, which we saw in Rogue One with K2SO and his Imperial bot buds. The ships performing the bombardment during the Night of a Thousand Tears flashback scene that we see are called the Thai SA bombers. The SA, which stands for Surface Assault, clearly is definitely what's going on here. And then uh, the big dome building that we see getting bombarded uh, and getting bombed is called Sundari. It is Mandalore's capital city, which we have seen animated a couple of different times, but this was the first time to have it appear in live action. The armorer says her sex survived the bombardment because they weren't on the planet itself, but rather the moon Concordia. This location has been the site of a Death Watch base, as seen in the Clone Wars. Satine Kree's banished the Death Watch Mandalorian rebels there, following the planet's bloody civil war. Pri Vizsla ruled the moon and was in charge of Death Watch, no doubt, leading to pauses being Mandalorian as well. <laughs> Something in my throat there for a second. Um, it is worth noting that the armor is the head of this very small orthodox Mandalorian religious group that was already theorized to be possibly derived from Death Watch as seen in the Clone Wars. So this really seems to solidify that theory and I'm very curious how that's gonna end up. He clearly doesn't know that she's an extremist. Um, yeah, I'm just very curious how that's going to go <laughs> long term. Uh, when her lesson is over, Paz Vizsla decides to challenge Mando over the right to carry the Darksaber, and they battle it out sans jetpacks, which makes my nerves go completely crazy. During their fight, they both use the Darksaber at one point or another. Something that is really cool here is how they made it so Paz was clearly struggling more with its weight than De uh, Din was, because in Star Wars lore, if you try to use a lightsaber that you haven't basically bonded with that is not yours, it will be its full weight of like 40 something pounds. Having that connection with it is what makes it light enough to wield naturally. While it does seem for a minute that Paz will win his family's saber back, Din ends up winning it out, but when the armor asks him to swear by their creed, which is of course the, have you ever removed your helmet, has anyone ever removed it for you, or whatever, um, he has to admit that he has removed his helmet. She immediately tells him that he is a Mandalorian no more. He asks how he can recompense. She says he can take himself to the living waters beneath the mines of Mandalore to be redeemed. The mines have been destroyed, but she reiterates that is the only thing he can do. He leaves the ring world by way of Galactic Cruiser. I have been trying to figure out the ship's name, if it's the Halcyon from the comics or another one, but I couldn't find any definitive answers on that. Weapons are not allowed on commercial flights, and religion is not an exemption in space, so Din spends a solid chunk of time rushing to dump out his weapons before the ship gets filled and takes off. It's a lot of weapons. It's a lot. <laughs> a lot of weapons. Thankfully, nothing is tampered with on the trip, but Din is seated behind a Rodian and its parent, uh, a child Rodian, and the child becomes overly curious with this mysterious Mandalorian. This bit to me was so much like the classic superhero takes public transit shtick, you know, where he sits and tries to blend in, but of course a kid sees him and is fascinated. And then later on in the episode we get him, he comes by and swings by in his own ride to really impress the kid, like Superman flying outside of a plane. 
classic superhero shtick. <laughs> um, the ship that he's on, it ends up taking him to Tatooine, where we meet up with Pelimoto. According to my research, uh, the droids that we have in this scene are an R5-D4, which we've seen before in A New Hope, a uh, WED-15 Treadwell droid, and I admit, I don't know if you say WED-15 or WED-15, and an MPH power model. Don't ask me what that means. Tim came to her now because she had sent him a message that she has a new ship for him. It's incomplete, but it is a Naboo N1 Starfighter, which we first saw back in The Phantom Menace. It was one of those, um, it was one of the ones that was very famously piloted by young Anakin as he destroyed the whole Trade Federation blockade and saved Padme from the droid army, so... Really cool throwback to the original series here. I absolutely love that. Uh, it's from the Galactic Republic era. So again, a really old piece of shit ship. <laughs> um, Peli promises that it will be faster than a father, which is one of those weird horse, cat, lemur, dog, horse things from Canto Bite <laughs> in The Last Jedi. If you remember the Canto Bite scene, that's what it mostly was about. I think. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, we'll not get into that. Uh, Peli also mentions that the this ship can hit hyperspace without a docking ring, which is something that we've seen uh, in Star Wars many times before. A single man or two man ships dock on this big ring and the whole thing takes them into hyperspace. She also said that she's dated a few Jawas, which is a bit disturbing. Um honestly, but she sends them to get a ship part for her, which was a cryogenic destiny combustion booster, which, fun fact, was the same stick that they used to hold the walls apart. Um, gosh, back in the day when Luke and Leia and Han are all stuck in the crash compactor, good stuff, good stuff. When the ship is finally completed after a fun montage of putting it all together and seeing a good amount of character growth in Din and his treatment of droids, he takes it out for a spin. I remember loving the pod racing scene from The Phantom Menace as a kid, and that is the pretty much exact route Mando takes his new ride on when he goes out for a test drive. We even see a womp rat. It is a glorious throwback to um, The Phantom Menace, and I, I admit I, I love that. I, I do love it. I dig it. <laughs> um, he takes the starfighter spinning through the orbit, which is a maneuver that apparently some people say, is a subtle nod to Anakin uh, in the Naboo ship when he says, I'll try spinning. That's a good trick. Good old kid Anakin is not an all-knowing voice. Um, before too long, a pair of X-Wing pilots catch up to him, the space version of being pulled over by some cops. The second pilot, the older one, is Carson Teva, is the character's name. He is played once again by Paul Sung-Hyung Lee, as we saw in The Mandalorian Season 2, which he also was on Kim's Convenience. He's been on a few other things. He's awesome. The other pilot is Max Lloyd-Jones, who played... I guess he doesn't have a Star Wars name, but he played a Luke Skywalker's body double during the Mandalorian season two finale. So upon his hasty return to Pelimoto, Din chooses the word wizard when asked to describe the ride, which is a callback, of course, to Anakin's own friends calling it wizard when he has his ship and 
Tatooine when he's a kid. It's a whole thing. It's cute. Okay. Uh, while he was out, Peli apparently took out an assassin. Not really, but it turns out to be Fennec Shand, um, who is here not with anger, but friendship. She asks him if he can come help her out with Boba. And he agrees right away, but he says he needs to make a pit stop first, referencing giving Grogu his new gear, whatever that may be. So, is the next episode of Mando going- or <laughs> Is this next episode of Book of Boba Fett going to be Mando uh, going off to see Grogu and then the final episode is a big battle? Or will Mando not be there because he gets caught up with the Grogu stuff and that's what we see in Mando season three? But then we could also just see him trying to go, you know, legitimize himself and heal or whatever in the waters of Mandalore in season three. I don't know. Maybe both? I don't know. We'll find out Wednesday, though. There are only two more episodes left. Episode six coming out, like I said, this Wednesday on Disney+. Plus. That is February 2nd. Um, there should be pretty long episodes. I have no idea what to expect with this next one, but I can pretty much imagine the last will be some kind of large battle or stealth mission battle. It'll be some kind of fight for sure. And that wraps up this week's episode of Sensational She Geek, live from Yancey Street. Thank you very much for listening to whatever portion of the episode you do listen to. It is the uh, seasonal holiday of Candlemas. Uh, Candlemas. Um, uh, over this next few days. So if you do things for that, have fun. Um, and if not, we are continuing to get the days very slightly longer each day that goes by. So the light is returning to the earth. Hopefully this year has been treating you well so far. We're already into February, guys. Yes, 2022. We're in the future. <laughs> I feel old. Have a great week.